Welcome to the WNCT Podcast Network. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. It is a crisis that strikes at the very heart and soul and spirit of our national will. People have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Welcome back to another episode of What the Politics. I'm Emily and I have Victoria here as well. Today's topic is something that's been widely talked about the past few months, but this is issues that have been going on for years and that have been talked about in our society for years. And that is the topic of police reform and the issues surrounding policing in the United States right now. And we're going to talk about it with someone who's been involved with police reform for years. We're going to look at police reform from the side of police officers and also from the side of the general public. We're also going to explore one particular incident that happened here in the state of North Carolina just a few weeks ago. And we'll discuss possible reform situations and what the possible future of policing in America is. Now we're going to dive right into this topic of conversation and have our guest introduce himself. My name is Mike Lawler. I am an associate professor of criminal justice at the University of New Haven in Connecticut. And uh, apart from that, you know, I've got a long career in politics and criminal justice. I was a prosecutor, a state prosecutor here in Connecticut when I first got out of law school. Then I was a member of the state legislature for 24 years, most of which I was chair of the Judiciary Committee. Then uh, former Governor Malloy appointed me to be his criminal justice advisor. I did that for eight years, and now I'm back at the university, and currently I am a uh, member of the New Haven Board of Police Commissioners, and uh, Governor Lamont, our new governor, uh, appointed me to the Statewide Police Officer Standards and Training Council, which has oversight over uh, police. So spent my whole life doing criminal justice stuff. Mm-hmm. And and today's topic, of course, is police reform. So you're a perfect guest for, for what we're going to mm-hmm. talk about today. Um, so we, we kind of want to highlight a few of the current issues in policing, but we want to get your perspective on what you are most concerned about or what you see as um, the top of the forefront of what are those current issues? Yes, I I think first and foremost, uh, the the issue at the moment is um, the sort of legitimacy of the police, you know, the uh, public confidence in the police, trusting them, uh, taking them at their word. um, and, And so that is a big challenge. Uh, a lot of that has to do with um, the fact that in recent years, uh, it's easier to see exactly what the police do, at least some police, uh, through video cameras and, and other means of keeping track of what police do. And, and I, I think what we've seen recently, you know, the George Floyd being a case in point, is that you know when people see firsthand things that presumably have been going on for over a century, um, they that changes the way they think about the police, and and I think the cumulative effect of all this has really undermined confidence in the criminal justice system generally, and law enforcement in particular. And and working your way through this problem and getting to the other side of it is a huge challenge. So I think that's what's underway now. Um, all of the reforms that are being discussed in cities and states and, and in Washington, D.C., seem to be focused on um, restoring confidence in the criminal justice system. Mm-hmm. And so you talk about um, legitimacy of the police and public confidence, but in certain communities, do you ever think that that confidence even existed? 
I don't know. I mean, mm. it, it's, it's pretty clear. Um, you know, you know, I, I think the easiest way to, and I do a lot of training for police these days. And, um, and if you talk to police, I think, many of them will say things like, you know, the real problem is people just don't comply. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and then we explain to police, you know, from the perspective of the people who they say are not complying, in other words, not following orders, uh, that they don't trust the police and, and they think that an encounter might result in them being killed. Um, and, and here's why they think that uh, I, I think, it, it's it's difficult for many police officers to appreciate this, but you know the history of the criminal justice system in the United States is really almost unique. I, I mean, you don't see in many other countries the the approach that emerged in the U.S., especially in the 1980s and early 1990s. But it really dates back, you know, since the founding of the country. Um, it, there's a great, you know, I, I tell my students. The, the best primer to understand this is to watch the documenta- uh, documentary 13th, mm-hmm. which people can see on Netflix. And it, it was an eye opener for me, I'll have to say. And, 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 and I think, you know, recently we've seen the, the coverage of the Tulsa massacre, which when I went to school and college and law school, I had no idea that that had actually taken place. If I went to school in Connecticut, you would think, you know, uh, it's, it's not like it's being covered up here necessarily, but nonetheless, I, I, I think, for all those reasons, people just, especially people of color, just don't trust uh, the police or the mm-hmm. system. And, and that's a big challenge. Do you think, how, how would you try to kind of bridge that gap? And, and if there was very little confidence in the first place, what, what is one way to kind of start building up that foundation? Well, <clears throat> it's, it's incremental. You know, I'm a, a devout incrementalist and, <laughs> In my many years in the legislature and elsewhere, you know, I, I think public policy changes take place step by step by step. It's not like a big overhaul that solves all the problem. And I think uh, issue number one is is getting rid of the bad cops because there's more than a few of those, mm. and um, that's that's a real problem. And I think it's a real problem because uh, uh, most cops or I would not categorize as bad cops are reluctant to call out their colleagues and, mm. and, and they're almost instinct instinctively defensive. And, um, I think you have to get over that. Um, and you have to realize that sometimes a few people do spoil it for everybody. And, and, you know, you just need to come up with an approach to deal with that. I mean, I mean, and, you know, it's interesting because I think police today feel everybody's blaming them for problems they had, played no role in creating, mm-hmm. um, which might be true. But on the other hand, what I try and say to people, you know, when I was a legislator, you know, we had some corrupt officials in our state, including our former governor, uh, John Rowland, who ended up going to federal prison, not once, but twice. But nonetheless, because of things he did, I had to vote for all kinds of restrictions on things I could do every day <clears throat> in terms of ethics and other things. So sometimes it works out like that. Sometimes a few people do spoil it for everyone. And so the goal is to not have people like that involved. And and I think for some people, that's a, that's a hard concept to wrap their heads around that, you know, they have a responsibility. Police have a responsibility for identifying and uh, uh, calling out their colleagues who are engaged in, violating people's constitutional rights, among other things. So I, th- I think that's that's a first step that's now being taken around the country. Mm-hmm. How, how would you define the role of a police officer in society? 
Mm-hmm. Well, um, that's an interesting question. I think that's being reconsidered now as well. I think what you, you know, people talk about this um, slogan, defund the police. Mm-hmm. And, and I think the, the people who criticize the slogan make the argument that it means getting rid of the police altogether. And, and first of all, I don't think that's what is intended. Uh, and, I, and I, for one, certainly would not support that. Mm-hmm. But what I think it does mean, or at least what it should mean, is that there are many things that we expect the police to do that the police are not properly trained or equipped to handle. Like, for example, persons with mental illness, substance abuse, homelessness, things like that. And and it would be better to have people who are specially trained to deal with folks who are dealing with those issues actually deal with those people. Mm-hmm. And, and in other words, take some of the burden off the police. Because, you know, the, the police get involved in these situations and something goes wrong, and then they get blamed when they, I think, accurately argue, like, we're not really properly trained to deal with this. And you give us gun and handcuffs and, you know, what'd you expect us to do? Mm-hmm. And I think that's a fair argument. And I, and so to me, the solution to that is bringing other types of specialists to the scene when there's a problem that doesn't require somebody with a gun and handcuffs. And, and oddly enough, you know, many police organizations are opposed to this concept. You know, they refer to it as, well, you, you want social workers to respond to, you know, a dangerous guy with a gun who's mentally, you know, no, that's not what people are saying, but it's just that, you know, you can't complain about being asked to do all these things that you're not properly trained and equipped to deal with. If people are saying, okay, we'll get other people to do that stuff and free you up to deal with the the serious bad guys. And, and, and so I, I think this is something that is, now playing out around the country and i think you know 10 years from now uh police departments are going to uh, conduct their business a lot differently than they do today mainly because other people will be dealing with 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 some of these social problems that you know one of my colleagues refers to uh, the police as the dumpsters of society in other words everything people don't know what to do with they just throw it over to the police and let them try and figure it out. And, and I think that's really a bad idea. It's really unfair to the police and it, it creates all these problems. Mm-hmm. And so. And you mentioned, you know, the training and how, you know, officers you've even spoke to have said, you know, I don't feel adequately trained. You're, you're handing me a gun, these sort of things. So I want to talk about, you know, what is the, the training that these um, officers go through to be officers of the law? What is those procedures? Well, of course, it depends where you are in the country mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. and what type of department you work for. So there's state police, there's county police, you know, county sheriffs, and then local police, not to mention all the federal law enforcement that is out there. Um, and and each of those categories gets a very different type of training. And uh, I, I think it's fair to say that some of the law enforcement agencies don't get anywhere near the appropriate amount of training that they should have. But I think you get into the bigger cities, certainly in the federal law enforcement community, the, the training is much more sort of state-of-the-art best practices. So, But uh, recently, you know, uh, you know, in order to be a police officer in most states, you have to have like a license or a certification. In order to get that, you have to go through uh, an, an academy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, the bad news is most of these academies are run sort of like a military um uh, like a boot camp, uh, with some uh, some focus on things like mental illness and constitutional rights, but a lot of focus on 
driving cars really fast and shooting guns very accurately, stuff like that. So I think there's a trend now to sort of shift that emphasis to make sure police officers coming on online these days um, have have a much better perspective on the kinds of problems they're going to be dealing with. So, for example, uh, in recent years, the number of new police officers who are coming in with some type of college degree has really increased a lot. And, 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 and I think that's something that we certainly expect in many other professions. And, and I think in the future, you'll probably see that become a requirement to become a police officer, have either a two-year or four-year degree where you're going to get exposed to some of these concepts. Um, so that's changing. Uh, it, in terms of the specific components of the, the training, um, you know, there, there's increased emphasis on mental illness, uh, on victim rights, on family violence, uh, on, on, uh, on dealing with substance abuse, uh, on dealing with people who have had a life of, you know, it's called trauma-informed training or trauma-informed care. Because, you know, a lot of the a, a, a lot of people who are sort of frequent flyers in the criminal justice world, meaning getting arrested all the time, being incarcerated, have a, a, a life story which is just filled with nothing but trauma. You know, they, they they were not from an intact family. They don't have much of an education. They have a substance abuse problem, a mental health issue. They they're got experienced homelessness, domestic violence, sexual assault. A lot of times. So, I mean, you put all that together, and it should be no surprise that people are getting involved in criminal behavior a lot and um and so the focus needs to be on at least in my opinion on, on what what approach can we take to ensure fewer and fewer people are in that trajectory like that school to prison pipeline trajectory um so uh ha having police be more sophisticated but more importantly having them better informed about what other alternatives they have what other types of uh, entities can they reach out to to deal with a problem that may not necessarily require someone to be arrested? Um, you know, I, I like to refer to the criminal justice really quicksand. You know, once you get in, it's hard to get out. Mm -hmm. And the more you struggle, the deeper you go. And, and so keeping people out altogether early on, I, I think, is a big priority. And we've seen some real progress in states around the country, including mine in Connecticut, that we've the the number of young people even getting arrested is just plummeted. Uh, you know, our uh, like 18 to 21 year olds in Connecticut, the number of them getting arrested statewide each year is down 72 percent, 72 percent compared to 10 years ago, and dropping every year. So, uh, different approaches seem to be working at the front end, and they do rely on people other than police to get those outcomes. Like teachers and administrators and community-based organizations. Definitely. And, and I feel like a lot of the focus with this police reform and these discussions is on local police. Do you think there's anything missing or lacking in the training for local officers based on your experience? Yeah, definitely. I mean, as I said, you know, it depends where you are in the country. You right. know, some places are way more sophisticated and, and, uh, employ best practices and others aren't. You know, uh, in the last year of uh, former President Obama's presidency, there was, uh, you know, a very comprehensive um, uh, publication that was endorsed by the um, international associations, the chiefs of police, and other law enforcement agencies that talked about 
key components of uh, policing in the 21st century, you know, best practices. And, and so many departments have adopted these and they include recruiting and training and supervision and oversight of police. And, and I think that's, that, that, that trend is definitely established, but it's, it's not happening at the same rate everywhere. And so, you know, in places in the country, most places, you know, uh, sheriffs are elected, right? And mm-hmm. so a lot of times the elected sheriff has an awful lot of autonomy in how he or she runs uh, his or her agency. And, and you know, that's where you can start to go off the rails a little bit. Mm-hmm. I, I do want to talk about mental health um, within uh, with police officers and, and when it comes to the community. How do you see training when it comes to mental health um changing and do you see any sort of or do you see more resources being available for police officers who are kind of going through a lot of trauma themselves when they're responding to a call and they don't know what to to expect yeah uh, uh, first of all there is an awful lot of training uh available now that uh helps police understand more importantly how to recognize the signs of uh mental illness as opposed to just you know aggressive behavior in the absence of mental illness. Um, there's a great initiative that's been up and running for the last three or four years. Uh, and you can see this online. It's called Stepping Up, Stepping Up. It's uh, been organized by the Council Governance Justice Center and it involves full county and state officials uh, collaborating on how to best deal with persons with mental illness when they come in contact with the criminal justice system and more importantly, how to keep them out altogether. And so there's a lot of stuff online about that. If your listeners care to do a deep dive, but yeah, I, I mean, it, things are way more sophisticated than they were 30 years ago. Let's put it that way. I can remember in the late 1990s as a legislator talking to correctional officers and I said, you know, uh, what do you think we should do? Ask now. Right. And they said, almost without exception, they said, you got to do something to get these people with mental illness out of the prisons and jails because you know, we can't deal with them. We're not trained to do it. We actually feel bad for them. They disrupt the whole operation here. And and that was you know, significant to me because this wasn't a bunch of do-gooder college professors saying this is a priority. These are actual frontline correctional officers saying it. And since that time, I think there's much more awareness of the, the, the unintended consequences of pushing persons with mental illness into the criminal justice system, but it, there's still a lot of work to be done. And, uh, and to this day, I think that continues to be a big problem. Definitely. And I also, I want to dive into kind of the media coverage aspect of, of these um, situations. Um, do you think that, you, you know, they're blown up? Are we only shown the bad side of the, you know, some people say the, the argument is statistically, you know, they don't think it's happening that often. They think that, you know, the media is only showing those certain situations that are getting, you know, quote unquote, blown out of proportion. So what do you say to kind of that side of, of the argument? You're talking about the uh, um, you're talking about the police incidents. Yeah. Yes. In, in general, yeah. over the past couple of years, there's been a lot of media coverage mm-hmm. for for a lot of police are for a f- very few police inc- incidents compared to, to the rest of the country. What are your thoughts on that? Well, it's true, but, you know, ironically, you could say the same thing about criminal justice policy uh, 
in the late 80s and early 90s that uh, it was all driven by these very sensational incidents and not based on any data and and so you know i guess the irony is now law enforcement agencies are feeling the same um backlash that you know people were concerned about social justice were feeling a number of years ago when these you know these very sensational horrific incidents led to huge policy changes that had lots of unintended consequences so i mean that's just the reality these days i mean you know this is not a criticism of the media but you know there's just a lot more uh, ability to get footage of incidents that are, are, are sort of like catnip for viewers, right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and you know, the expression, if it bleeds, it leads, I, I think there's some truth to that, right? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's just a fact, you can't change that. Mm-hmm. And, but the only, the, only, the only remedy, in my opinion, is, is to do what it sounds like you're doing, what I'm doing right now is just trying to explain lots of context and to put things in context. And so, yeah, if there was no body cam video of, Derek Chauvin uh, having his knee on George Floyd's neck for nine and a half minutes, that incident would have never be known to you or me or anybody else, right? It would have been the officer's word against a couple of the bystanders, and that would be that. But now these things are captured on video, and people can see it, and a lot of times it's pretty bad. And, um, and, and I think that's the way it goes, right? I mean, these incidents are going to drive public policy. And uh, my advice to police officers has consistently been, I mean, you need to find a way to take responsibility, not as an individual for this misconduct, but as a professional for changing things to make it less likely that incidents like this happen in the future. I mean, you've got to do it. I'm guessing 40 years ago, the George Floyd incidents probably happened more frequently than they do today, except no one knew about it. Uh, I'm old enough to remember Rodney King incident in Los Angeles in 1995, when for the very first time, uh, just purely by coincidence, uh, a bystander with one of these old school video cameras captured the police mercilessly beating Rodney King uh, for no apparent reason. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that led to a huge reaction around the country because this really was the first time people were seeing this kind of video. Uh, before that, you know, there was some films of, of like the uh, uh, Selma to Montgomery march. You know, where you saw the police uh, beating beating up pretty brutally John Lewis and other marchers, and I think that had a big impact on how people think about these things. And even before that, um, the murder of Emmett Till, where his mother mm-hmm. it was like 1955. His mother decided to have an open coffin with mm-hmm. Emmett's face completely brutalized, and that had a big impact. So these images have a big impact on on how people think, and ultimately on public policy. And and so I think the law enforcement community needs, needs to come to grips with this. Like, yeah, you do have some bad apples in your midst, and you have to figure out how to make this happen less frequently, because otherwise this pressure on policing is not going to stop. I mean, it's just not going to stop. Mm-hmm. And we are coming up at the, we're at 22 minutes now, but do you have enough time to, to analyze a recent, um, a recent incident here in North Carolina with us? Yeah. Okay. Definitely. Um, so the, 
one thing that has one incident that recently has gotten a lot of media coverage, something that we even covered here at WNCT, is this Elizabeth City shooting. And recently, North Carolina sheriff's deputies were um, justified, quote unquote, justified, according to district attorney, according to district attorney Andrew Womble, in their fatal shooting of a black man in April because the man ignored their commands and drove his car directly at one of them before they fired any shots. Um, the officer's actions were consistent with their training and fully supported under the law in protecting their lives in this community. Uh, that was a quote from the district attorney during a press conference. Um, do you have, so, so, so when it comes to the officer's actions consistent with their training, and that's what made this justified, do you agree with that statement that the district attorney made or how, how do you see this shooting? Well, of course, I don't know everything there is to know about this incident, but I have seen the video and I've read a lot about it. And um, mm-hmm. it a couple of things. First of all, there is a policy in that sheriff's department about shooting at uh, motor vehicles, especially as they're driving away. Uh, that's a policy. I think what the district attorney said was, well, that doesn't affect the criminal law. And he has a point, right? I mean, uh, that I mean, the way that these things would go is okay it's definitely a homicide right the police officer caused the death of, of mr brown um the, the police officer is going to claim self-defense right and uh and when someone makes one of those claims then basically the burden shifts to the prosecutor to disprove that beyond a reasonable doubt which is a difficult thing to do and in some and in many cases the prosecutors say well there's no way we can disprove there's no way we can prove that the officer shot this man for a reason other than he felt he was in danger that's Mm -hmm. that's the criminal side but it doesn't mean it's okay it doesn't mean there's no wrongdoing and and uh and i think what the prosecutor is saying okay so the sheriff's department has a policy but that doesn't change the way the criminal law works it does however have a big impact on how the civil law works and my guess is that that department will end up paying a lot of money to the estate of mr brown because as far as I could tell, the police definitely were not following their training or the, the orders of the department. I mean, that's, that's the exception to qualified immunity, right? If you're disobeying your training uh, and, and firing at a car that's driving away, um, then, then, then you're gonna be liable for that. And, and another thing I saw here, which is, you know, I think probably going to not be the ca- case in the future is that, they're reluctant to release the body cameras. You know, mm-hmm. three years ago here in Connecticut and in a lot of places, we have a law now that says at a maximum, the, the body camera video has to be re- released no later than four days after the incident. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's the maximum. And and there's no exceptions to that. So that, that's, that's uh, something that's odd. And the other thing is uh, in Connecticut and in most states, the local prosecutor would not be the one making the decision, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's because there's some obvious conflicts involved right. in that. Um, in Connecticut, just last year, the legislature created this new position of state inspector general, and it's it's a totally independent prosecutor who will have the authority to make all these decisions and, and the responsibility to make all these decisions. So, uh, I think I think what happened in that community is a case in point of how why things should change and, and it gives you some insight into how things are going to change. Mm-hmm. Sure. And kind of keeping on the track a little bit with the body cam footage, because that was one of, you know, the biggest gripes about this case was 
you know, the family, again, didn't see it for, for an extended period of time as for when they were supposed to have seen it. And then they were only shown, you know, a very short um, time frame of the body cam footage. So how, you know, do you feel like in these situations, the officers, the, the body cam fo- footage should be completely transparent, completely available to the families, no redactions. What is your stance on how transparent those should be in these situations? Well, as I said, I mean, that is now the law in Connecticut and a bunch mm-hmm. of other jurisdictions, right? I mean, you have to make this available. I mean, you have a few days because sometimes you have to blur out <clears throat> the the faces of mm-hmm. people who are not involved. You know, there's a couple of things you need to do. But but there's a deadline. And, and I think many police departments, especially city police departments, have taken the, uh, the position that we're just going to release this because – our failure to release it just creates suspicion, right? You saw in Chicago a number of years ago, uh, after I think two and a half years, the, the the Chicago police released body camera or dashboard camera images of the of the killing of a young man there. Which, and when people saw it, people were horrified. And as a result, you know, the mayor lost an election, the district attorney lost an election, and and but they obviously dragged their feet on that for two and a half years. Um, and, and that's what is now changing. And so my guess is in North Carolina that time will come at some point when you kind of get in step with the, the, the momentum around the country. But, yeah, I mean, it's 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 you just have to make it available. Mm-hmm. There's no excuses. Yeah, there is a bill in state. Le- and yeah, the state legislator right now. Legis- legislate. I'm not saying that right. Um, <laughs> right now, say uh, trying to trying to re- release uh, trying to do something about that policy where they're wanting all body cam footage to be available to the public Mm -hmm. after a certain amount of time. Um, Is there, are there any incidents? This is just something kind of a question off the top of my head. Are there any incidents where it's appropriate to turn off police body cam footage? Are they required to have it the entire time that they're on duty? Uh, What what is policy around that? So um, it's a good question. It gets really complicated. But there are a lot of model policies around the country, including here in Connecticut, as I said. And, yeah, I mean, there are situations where uh, you don't need to have your body camera on, even though you're on duty. So, Mm. I mean, the obvious one, you're having lunch with your colleagues or something. But also, (laughs) like, uh, undercover, um, you know, undercover officers who can't wear a body camera because, obviously, they're undercover. Uh, Detectives who are in plain clothes don't necessarily have to have them on and and there are rules about when they when the camera must be on right and and generally speaking the rule is whenever you're responding to an incident um you you have to activate your body camera the dashboard cameras for example and interestingly apparently some police don't realize this but both the body cameras and the dashboard cameras you know once you activate it it reaches back typically 30 seconds for the previous 30 seconds because the camera's always rolling it's not necessarily recording mm. and and so when you turn it on it, it, it captures 30 seconds prior to the time you turned it on mm. and uh and there have been some instances recently where you see the police turned it on after they did something really bad not realizing that that was all captured on camera and in particular this recent incident down in louisiana where the the state troopers brutally beat some guy after his chase and lied about the cause of death. You know, in, in that particular case, you can see that uh, the officer had the body camera off and then turned it on, but it recaptured some of the more outrageous behavior there. But anyways, yeah, I mean, there are rules in this stuff and, and, uh, and 
the more you learn about them, they make sense, right? There are some exceptions, but on the other hand, it's a mandate to have it on in pretty much every situation you can imagine would be uh, would would be appropriate. So I, I believe I only have one more question, and uh, Emily has one more question as well. Um, my last question for you is: uh, What do police officers come to you for when they when they're wanting legislative change or when they're wanting the public to know about what they're dealing with? What is what is a common theme recently that you're seeing? Well, recently, I, at least in the world I travel in, which is the Northeast, you know, Connecticut, and uh, to a lesser extent on the federal level. Um, I think police are very much sort of in a bunker mentality right now. I think they feel very much on the defensive. They they feel that people are unfairly criticizing them. They feel like they as individuals are getting blamed for things they didn't do, like, for example, what Derek Chauvin did. And, 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 I, and I think it's hard for them to get out of this gear of thinking uh, prospectively and constructively about how the Policing can be reinvented because that's clearly what's going on. Policing is being reimagined, reinvented, and and so um, I spend a lot of my time trying to reassure well-intentioned police officers that you know you, you can make your job a lot better. You just have to acknowledge that there are some of your colleagues that have done some outrageous things, and a lot of this has to do with improper training and bad hiring decisions and failure to discipline police officers who got more or less caught red-handed. And, and it's hard to essentially throw some of your colleagues under the bus when the circumstances warrant that. And I think that I know I'm not the only one having this conversation with police officers. It's so important to sort of acknowledge that there really is a problem. And, and unless you can do that, when people start discussing what the solution is, you're just not going to be at the table. And mm-hmm. We saw that here in Connecticut last year, the police just we're 100% against the legislation, no matter what. And as a result, we're not part of the discussion mm-hmm. of what to, what to include in it. Definitely. And, and again, this is my last question for you. So what do you see the future of policing in America over the next few years being? What do you hope that middle ground is that, you know, law enforcement officers and citizens are able to come to? Yeah, I mean that's a great question, and it kind of would a require one. a very long answer. <laughs> <laughs> but but I, I think I'd like to go back to something I was discussing earlier, mm-hmm. and simply mention I think in the future you're going to see uh, policing sort of shrink their their jurisdiction. In other words, there are going to be other ways to respond to incidents that don't involve public safety. You know, persons with mental illness, uh, traffic violations. Um, homelessness, um, substance abuse, you know, I, you see a trend around the country to sort of start ratcheting back the war on drugs. Because, I, I mean, there, there's no evidence that the criminal justice approach to drug abuse has been effective. There's just a lot of evidence that it, it's had all kinds of unintended consequences. And and so I, I, I think legislators, police leaders around the country are reconsidering what is the proper role for policing? And, uh, and, and so that's what I'm saying. I think in the future, you'll see highly trained, specialized police officers dealing with things that they're trained to deal with and other people will deal with stuff that they're trained to deal with. Mm, so kind of, you know, creating almost specialized tactical teams for, you know, specific situations. 
Yeah, but but not involving uniformed police officers. I'm right, saying right. it's a whole different ballgame. And 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 I, and I think that it's there's very clear evidence that we, you know, don't forget if you compared what happens today to what happened 50 years ago or 60 years ago, you see that a lot of what police deal with, police just didn't have to deal with in the past. I mean, mental illness, substance. You know, there was no. I mean, all of these, this so-called war on drugs, right? I mean, this is relatively recent approach to substance abuse and, uh, and 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 same with mental illness same with homelessness so i think people out of frustration have a problem they want to deal with like the guy urinating in front of the restaurant window or something like that that a homelessness issue a substance abuse issue and a mental health issue all combined into one and what do you call the police and what do you expect the police to do they're going to arrest the guy put him in jail now what do you expect the the people around the jail to do like they're going to put them in segregation and and you're just spiraling downhill here and, and nothing good is going to come of that. And uh, so I, I, I think an acknowledgement that policymakers have to come up with better solutions to these problems than just dumping it on the police. And I think that's, that's underway. Well, that, those are all the questions that we have for you, and and we appreciate you taking the time to speak with us yes, today. Thank you. Yeah, and, and thanks for giving me the time to talk in detail about some of this stuff. It's a, a welcome opportunity. Let me just say that. Thanks right, so bye. much. Bye. All right, everyone, that's going to wrap up this episode of What the Politics. Of course, we release new episodes every Tuesday. You can find those at WNCT.com under the Features tab under the WNCT Podcast Network, Spotify, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Like our special guest said, he did recommend a movie that kind of correlates with this whole conversation. And if you're interested in watching that, again, that movie is called 13th and it's all about the intersection of race justice and mass incarceration within the united states so i highly recommend you go check that out if you feel free to again that is on netflix thank you guys so much for joining us for this conversation and we'll see you next week